Stories. Everybody's got them, and we can learn from each other. History can be traced through letters and writings, but the one thing that has remained throughout the generations is the oral tradition. Oral history is one attempt to pass along the stories, tales, musings, and remembrances of one family for the benefit of listeners for generations to come. Join us now for this episode of Oral History with Jeff Zulkowski. Thank you for joining us today. My apologies, first of all, that it took a little bit extra time for this episode to drop, but I wanted to take some time with this subject. About a month ago, I did an episode entitled Two Moms in My Life or Two Mothers in My Life, and I talked about my mom, Barbara Zolkowski, and my wife, Larissa Zolkowski, and how blessed I was to have both of them in my life. And today I want to talk to you about two dads or two fathers in my life. And the first one is my earthly dad, my uh, father Alex, and I'll spend a good amount of time talking about him and just the things that I loved and appreciated about him. And then secondly, I want to talk to you about my heavenly father, about my, my God who loves me beyond anything that I could ever imagine or expect. And, and I'll share a little bit about that story as well. But first, um, I want to take, talk to you about my dad. My dad was born in a little town called Rockville, Colorado. He, it's a coal mining camp, or at least it was when he grew up. He grew up with uh, quite a few brothers and sisters on what was called the Chicken Ranch. And to this day, my dad still is there. Both he and my mom, my sister, my brother, and uh, brother-in-law, and I took my dad's ashes and my mom's ashes out to this place called the Chicken Ranch, and we spread their ashes together out in Rockville so that they could be there. But they're not there. That's where their ashes are at. They're actually both in heaven. My mom came to Christ while she was in the Catholic Church. My dad came to faith in Jesus Christ after me, and they both are not worrying about the broken bodies they had to live in, and they're not worried about the pain and the suffering that they had to endure. They're both in heaven with their heavenly father and mine. Well, my dad grew up in the in that little town in Rockville. He, was, he wasn't the youngest, he wasn't the oldest. He was right in the middle of a group of kids, and they grew up poor. And he met my mom uh, when he was, just before he headed off to uh, serve in World War II. And I ha- I still have some precious letters that my dad and my mom wrote to each other uh, during that time of being separated and then coming together. Um, when they got, when he got out of the military after serving in Germany at the very tail end of World War II, he came back to Colorado and they got married and they began the family. And the first child they had in 1953 was my brother Michael, and Michael didn't survive uh, for very long. I'm not sure whether it was a few hours or a few days, but as I look back on my genetic testing, you can go back in uh, an episode called The Ups and Downs, and just my speculation that my brother and I and my parents probably all lost, we lost children very early. Um, my wife and I never had the opportunity, but my brother lost a child, Mark Jr., very early in pregnancy, and so did my parents. Michael died. And then in 1955, my brother Mark was born. 
Um, Mark was the first uh, of the surviving children, and he's still alive today. And he was 10 years older than I, and my sister Michelle was born in 1961, and then me in 1965. And my dad loved us. My dad loved us in tangible, real ways. My dad worked the same job for 39 years, and it was not glamorous by any means. He uh, worked for a vending company. He filled cigarette machines with cigarettes. Yes, they at one point in time had machines where you could put coins in and you could get a pack of cigarettes out. There weren't the restrictions there are today, and cigarettes weren't $9 a carton or $9 a pack. They were 65 cents at one time. And he filled and serviced cigarette machines in bars, and he filled candy machines in schools, and he worked on jukeboxes that played music, and he worked on... uh, pinball machines and recovered the felt on pool tables. And again, none of this was glamorous. He worked for a gentleman by the name of Charlie Solardino, who owned this little company called New Music Company in Florence, Colorado. And he did it for 39 years. And he did it because it met the need of this family of five, my, my three, my, the three kids and my mom and dad. And I think back about my dad He would bring home about $125 a week, and I don't know how, but he and my mom and God made that work for a family of five. We never lacked for anything. We had meat. We had vegetables. We had milk to drink. My parents would sometimes try to pass off powdered milk as real milk when things got tight, and we would, the kids would call them on it, but... For the most part, as a kid, I didn't even know I was poor. Yeah, I lived in a house that was under a thousand square feet. It was six rooms, um, a bathroom, three bedrooms, a kitchen, and a living room. But we always had what we needed. And my dad willingly went to work every day. And my dad's job was the kind of job that, yeah, he was gone from about 7.30 in the morning till 5 in the afternoon, but he was always on call. I can remember calls from the Palm Garden because the cigarette machine jammed up at 11 o'clock at night, and he'd get in the truck and he'd drive over there and he would figure out what was wrong, and it was typically that somebody had put a Canadian quarter in the machine. Or the Star Bar in Penrose would call and... He would get in the truck and he'd go out there and do it, even if it was nine, ten o'clock at night. And there was a point in my life where I went through a, a teaching, we'll call it, at a church. And the teaching was about how every person carries a father wound. And I struggled pretty hard to find out what my father wound was. Yeah, my dad wasn't always present when he was home because he was always waiting for the next call, but he was always there and he loved us and he cared for us and he did what he did in this job for 39 years because he loved his wife and he loved his family. He loved my mom so much. He would tell stories about their getting married and moving into a little apartment in Pueblo, Colorado. That's where they lived first. And he he joked that in that apartment, you could sit on the toilet, sorry, P 
PG-13. You could sit on the toilet and stir something on the stove. That's how small the apartment was. And the first time my mom tried to cook spaghetti for him, she partially heated some spaghetti that wasn't quite done and was kind of crunchy, and she dumped a can of stewed tomatoes over the top, and she thought she had made spaghetti. And he had to take her to his sister Emily's house and have Emily teach her how to cook. My dad knew how to cook. All of the kids knew how to cook because that's what Grandma Pauline did is she taught all the kids how to cook. So my, my aunt on my dad's side taught my mom how to cook so that they could survive. But my dad loved my mom. I, and as a kid, when you're growing up, kids will know this. Like when parents show affection to one another, a kid's response is, ew. And that was us as kids. But there was no doubt that my dad loved my mom. He would protect her. He was the first one to defend her. He would be the one that when he came home and she'd had a hard day, he would take the reins and say, okay, you guys get to deal with me because mom's had a hard day. But I seriously had no idea until the end of my mom's life how much my dad loved her. But before I get to that, let me tell you a few things about my dad. When I was four years old, I started working with my dad every day during the summer. School would end. I had a job. Yes, at four, I had a job. And I went with my dad. And I remember as a little kid, I was uh, a waif. I was thin, I was blonde, and I wanted long hair. And so we would go into these bars and we would fill the vending machines, we'd fill the cigarette machine, we would count the money. And it became a challenge for me to see if I could count coins as fast as my dad because he was blazingly fast. And I would try and try. And I remember getting comment after comment from people in the bars and they would tell my dad, your daughter is so beautiful. And my dad would explain, no, that's my son because I had this long hair, long blonde hair. And, uh, but I just enjoyed that time with him. I had so many fond memories of summers with my dad, traveling almost every day. I would uh, get in the truck and we would drive this old 67 Ford F-100 truck that you couldn't close the doors at the same time because the air pressure would cause you to not be able to close the doors. And you can go back and listen to an episode I did that I called road stories, but it was really all the accidents I've ever been in. And one of the, some of the fondest memories were with my dad in that, in that white beat up Ford F-100 pickup. And one of them was, we went to a place called the Lone Pine in Penrose or in Wetmore, Colorado. And it was a cold morning and we closed the doors of the truck. We closed the driver's side first and then I closed my door so that we could get them closed. And there was, there was quite a large bag of money sitting on the seat. And we went in and we did what we did. And we counted the money and serviced the vending machines. And I tried to be as fast as my dad. And I think we ate lunch and we came out and it had warmed up pretty, pretty markedly. And uh, we noticed that his window was down. And he's, he looked at me and he goes, I know I rolled that window up. He said, and he looks, he said, right there, there's a bag of money on the seat. So I wouldn't have left the window down. And we looked down on the ground between 
the truck and the car next door and there was all the shattered tempered glass the air pressure in that cab that you because you couldn't close the doors together that pressure built and then as it heated up in the Colorado late morning sun the air pressure got so great that it exploded his window out and I remember another time driving with him and we're just tootling down the road again toward Wetmore Colorado and all of a sudden we lost an antenna and we didn't have radio for a few days so at one point he replaced the antenna with a coat hanger and that worked really well except Another day when we were driving, we were driving along at about 50 miles an hour, and all of a sudden we heard this loud thunk and looked, and we had speared a bird out of the air on that car homemade car antenna of a coat hanger, and my dad had to pull over to the side of the road and go take it off and throw it into the weeds. And there was just fun. I remember going to... Charlie Solardino's brother's restaurant and Gus would always feed us and he would always give me a roll of nickels when we finished. Gus would give me a roll of nickels. And these are just the memories I had with my dad. And I loved my summers with my dad from 4 to 14. Almost every day, every summer, I spent time with my dad. And I just loved it. I loved my mom. Go back and listen to how much I loved my mom, but I loved spending time with my dad. And when I had that training and I had to think about my father wound, it was really hard for me to come up with something that I felt like my dad had not done or that he had failed on. And I know that's not everybody's story. I know that many of you listening right now as I'm saying these things is going, well, I'm glad for you, but that's not the way it was in my house. And your father was abusive, or your father was a drunk, or your father was uh, a wanderer, or your father was gone, or your father hurt your mom, or a number of things are possible. And I feel for you, and I understand as best I can from my perspective the things that you may have gone through. But I also understand that my dad loved and cared for my family, and I had that as an example. And I bring that to the table, hopefully, with my family, is to be a dad like my dad was for us. I remember Christmases. My dad had a dear friend named Gene Roder. Gene at one time was the oldest mayor of Florence, Colorado. I think he was 92 when he was mayor of Florence. Gene ate one raw onion and one clove of raw garlic every day. Now, nobody wanted to get real close to Gene because his breath didn't smell that great, but Gene was just a, a great friend of my dad. And he would travel with us as well at times, and he just was a good friend. We got Christmas presents from my dad's friends, um... I know Gene one year gave us all a brick, and I was the kid who would crawl under the Christmas tree and shake every present, and I would figure out exactly what it was, and I would shake a box, and I knew the rough size, and there was one Christmas I shook it, and I'm like, that's the Mastermind game. Now, if any of you play Wordle now, Mastermind was just Wordle with colored pegs instead of letters, and you had to try to figure out how to put the colored pegs in the right order. But... This year, we all got a brick, and it was wrapped, 
from Gene, but we just couldn't understand why we got a brick until you unwrapped the brick and there was a 10 or a 20 or a $50 bill taped to the brick. Charlie, my dad's boss, was so gracious to my dad. The use of the the vehicle that he had, that 67 Ford F100, and then eventually a 1976 Ford F100 that he had that was tan, he let us use anytime we want. If we wanted to go camping, we went in the truck. It had boxes on the back and we would put a tarp over the top and when we went camping and that was a makeshift tent for somebody to sleep in. We drove it to Nebraska one time to pick up a friend of my sister's who lived there. Charlie, the owner of my dad, my dad's boss, was so gracious to us and we never wanted because of the relationships that my dad built and the people that loved him and loved us by extension because that's who my dad was. Now, I mentioned earlier that later in life I learned exactly how much my dad loved my mom. If you go back and listen to previous episodes, you'll know that my mom had a had Parkinson's and she was diagnosed in the late 1980s and her life was mapped out by the doctors. This is your prognosis. You're going to have a fertile mind in a body that will eventually not work at all. And she went from 0% to about 60% of that walk. And then in 1995, when I was living in Nashville, Tennessee, I got a phone call one day. She had had a stroke and my mom went from 60 to 99.9% of her walk in an instant. She, when she had the stroke, she was robbed of her ability to move, to eat, to speak. Really, the only thing my mom could do was wail, cry, and be like she couldn't move. My, and I watched my dad. This is 1995. My dad is 69 years old, 67 years old at this time. I watched my dad take care of my mom in ways that showed me how much he loved her. My mom spent eight years in my sister's house with my dad taking care of her, and she never once got a bed sore. My dad would roll her over. He would lift her out of bed using a Hoyer lift. He would place her in a chair. He would comb her hair. He would talk to her. He would read the Bible to her. He would change her diapers when she messed herself. He would bathe her. I learned what love truly is by watching my dad love my mom when she could give nothing in return. I was humbled by my dad's example. I mentioned before in a previous episode that we, when we were growing up, we lived in a house that we lived at full volume. And by that, I mean there was always somebody yelling at somebody or yelling something to someone. There was just a lot of yelling in our house. Nobody was ever really terribly angry, but there was just, our house was just loud. We were having fun loud. We were playing games loud. We were having fights loud. We were, whatever it was, we were doing it loud. And in the midst of that, as a kid, again, between the ewes, you get these little glimpses of 
I know my parents love each other and they're still together. You know, when I was growing up and other kids were, their parents were getting divorced and they were struggling and they suddenly had Christmases in two different places and just all the mess that divorce can bring and the heartache that it can bring. I looked at my parents that they were loving each other. They were cleaving to one another, the Bible says, and they were loving each other in sickness and in health, for in good times and bad, in poverty and in wealth. Wasn't a lot of wealth in our family, but there was wealth of love and care and good times. And it was due to the rock-solid guy that my dad was. Now, my dad didn't do everything perfect. Okay, I know this is like Facebook where we only post the best things about our parents, but there weren't a lot of negative things. My dad raised his hand to me once. He talked to me. He reasoned with me when I got out of line. He would get angry, but he would temper his anger. The only time he ever raised his hand to me, the every time he ever struck me, was I when I tried to play reverse psychology on my dad. He was angry about something, and he had backed me up against the washing machine, which was in the corner of our kitchen. And I looked him in the eye, and I said, go ahead and hit me. You're going to do it anyway. And he couldn't do anything else at that point. I gave him no choice, and he swatted me. But that's all it ever was. And again, I know that hurts for some people to hear that because they met the hard end of a belt or a stick or a switch or any other manner of evil punishment. But my dad didn't have to. He didn't have to command respect. We gave him respect because he deserved it. And we loved him because he deserved it. So this is the guy that I memorialize on Father's Day, and this is the guy that I strive to be like on Father's Day and every other day. Alex Zulkowski, no middle name. He developed the middle initial N somehow through all the paperwork we ever did for him later in life because he put down none at one point, and so that kind of became his de facto middle initial was N. But that was my dad. And I loved him to the very end. I loved him when we had to put him in a nursing home and he didn't want to talk to me for a couple of months, but he still loved me. And I preached his funeral. And I listened again to a dear friend of his, a man who was roommates with him in the nursing home, wail loudly at the loss of a dear friend because my dad was dear to many people and he was especially dear to my brother Mark, my sister Michelle, and to me. All that said, and again, I know I'm blowing a lot of sunshine up my dad's skirt right now and he wouldn't take it if he were here. He would be trying to figure out a way to shut me up. But I really want to talk to you about the other father in my life. And that's my Heavenly Father. 
And he had a plan for me before I was ever born. He says in his word that he knit me together in my mother's womb. And before I ever took a breath, before one of my days on earth had come to be, he knew who I was and he had a plan for me. And he loved me enough to let me wander as far away from him as I possibly could during my years in high school. Go back and listen to those episodes that deal with that. He let me wander away so that I would know what it was like to come back to him. And when I came back, he ran toward me and he threw his arms of love around me and he welcomed me into the family of God. Again, go back and listen to my testimony of my coming to faith in October of 1983 and how God rescued me from a kid that had grown up in the Catholic Church and at least had a moral center and would pray into the corner of his bedroom at night, God, if you're there, please help me, to a night in 1983 when God fully introduced himself to me and showed me how much he cared for me. Now, in the Bible, there's a a story. If you want to go look this up, it's in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, it's probably called one of many things, the parable of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal. If you look up the word prodigal in the dictionary, it will talk about extravagance, living extravagantly, wasting money. So when we think of people and we we think of the let it rain and the brushing their fingers together and rolling off bills into the air, that's extravagance. That's prodigal. Now, most people call that story the prodigal son because the story goes something like this. There's two sons of this dad and They both live with their dad, but the younger son determines that he wants to do it his own way. And even though he doesn't deserve his inheritance at that point in his life, he goes to his dad and says, give me my share of the inheritance. And his dad agrees, and his dad sends him away with this wad of cash, so to speak. And the kid goes out and he lives a prodigal life. He lives extravagantly. He throws the money around. It's raining money. He's got friends, you know. He as long as the money's there, friends are hanging around him because that's what people do. If somebody's buying drinks at the bar, that's my friend. You know, if somebody's willing to pay for dinner, wow, he's he's a good friend. And that's what this kid did until he'd wasted it all. And he had nothing left. And, he, and this little Jewish boy found himself hiring himself out to this farmer, this pig farmer of all things. Dietary law requires that Jews don't eat pork, but this young man was actually taking care of the pigs and he was feeding the pigs and he was feeding them the slop. And he got to the point, he got so far away 
that he was longing to eat the slop that he was feeding to the pigs. And in a moment of clarity, he thought about his dad. And he thought, my dad's servants eat better than this. If I, if I go back and maybe just somehow maybe if I go back and I throw myself on my dad's mercy, maybe he'll take me back as a hired hand and maybe I can at least do better than I'm doing now. Even though I was wasteful and prideful and prodigal, maybe if I go back, maybe he'll welcome me back. So he takes off. He got as far away from his dad as he possibly could. And he decided to go back. And when he goes back, the, his father's waiting on the porch of the house and he's looking down the road just every day hoping his son is going to come back. And he sees him at a distance and he drops everything and he runs to his son and he throws his arms around him and he holds his head to his chest and he says, my son has come back to me. It was not the expectation that the son had in that moment. The father went so far as to say to his servants, go get the fatted calf, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party because my son, who was dead, as far as I knew, is now alive and he's come home and we're going to celebrate. And he put a robe on him and he put a ring on him and he welcomed him, not just as a servant, but he welcomed him back as a son. The father was prodigal in his response to his son. He was extravagant. He was lavish because he, he gave love to his son that his son had not given to him. Now, there's a whole other part of the story that I won't go into with the other brother and how the other brother got bent out of shape over the circumstances. But I want you to understand that that story is not just a clever story and a way to make the word prodigal something that we use in our vernacular today. That story is there to show you a picture of how God operates. God is that prodigal father. And when you want to go, he'll let you go. For me, when I was 14 and my parents said, we're not going to church anymore, he let me go. And I stopped going to church and I stopped doing anything that even resembled morality. And I began to slide farther and farther and farther away from him. But he wasn't sitting in heaven going, I'm done with Jeff, that's it. No, in his providence, in his grace, in his sovereignty, he was motivating my sister and my brother-in-law to pray for me. He was building a heart for evangelism into this young lady that would present me with the gospel in 1983. And he waited, he waited for me to get so far away, like that prodigal son, he let me get so far away that... When I got there, I realized how much I loved him because I saw what it was like to live in the world. I knew how dark I had gotten. I knew how dark the world could be. And I knew that God had something for me that was so much better than that. 
And when I went to him that night in 1983, he came running toward me. And he threw his arms around me. And he held my head to his chest. And he said, my son has come back. And he loved me. And he changed me in an instant that night. And he set me free. And he made me a child again. His beloved child. And he gave me a purpose in life. And he took the giftings that he'd built into me and he used them to his honor and glory. And he set me on a path. And he changed the things in my life that had gotten so dark and he began to redeem things again and again. And he led me to Nashville, Tennessee and he grew me deeply with a group of men that I cherish beyond anything they'll ever understand. They helped me grow in my faith and in my walk with the Lord. Guys like Brian and Steve and Jeff and Keith and Jeff and Keith and Jeff and Scott and Brent and Carrie and Tyler and Steve and David. These guys loved me and they walked with me and they pointed me toward Jesus and then God drew me to Cleveland and he brought this girl from Indiana to love me and care for me and to make me a husband and then God fashioned this beautiful little girl and again, he knew her before she ever drew a breath and he knit her together in her mother's womb. And it happened to be a young lady in Columbus, Ohio named Crystal. And through another tremendous gift, God gave this little girl to me and God made me a father. And my goal in life is to be like my two fathers, to be like Alex, the rock, the, the smooth as glass, loves his family and will do anything for them, and my heavenly father who gave everything for me. He gave his son so that I could be in relationship with him. Those are the two fathers that I emulate, and those are the two fathers I want to be like. And those are the examples that I get to follow. And I hope that I can be a tenth of the father that my dad was. And I hope I could be a gazillionth of the father that my heavenly father is. So again tonight, I know Father's Day hurts some of you. So I want to pray for you and others. If you don't know Christ, I want you to know my dad. I want you to know my heavenly dad. 
I want you to be able to know that he's there. No matter how far you've walked away from him, he's still waiting for you to come back. And when you move toward him, he will come running down the path and he will throw his arms around you and he will love you into back into his family. All you have to do is turn from trying to do things of your own and come to him and say, I know, Father God, that what you did, that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for me. What you did in giving your son up, you did for me so that I could have relationship with you. If that's you, if you make that decision, please contact me. You can do it through our website. You can do it through our Facebook page. You can call me. You can call me from our, our website or our Facebook page. I want to know that you've made that decision to follow Christ because I want to get you plugged into a church wherever you're at so that you can grow and be nurtured and be discipled and be loved. But right now, I want to pray for those of you that hurt when it comes to Father's Day. So please, if you would, bow your heads with me right now. Father, I know that you are the perfect example and you are the perfect father. But Lord, there's a whole lot of imperfect fathers on this planet, and I'm one of them. And Father, I just pray that those who hurt right now, those who have listened to these words and maybe even stopped and had to come back to this at a later time because it was just hurting too much, I pray that you would draw them to yourself that you would open their eyes and their ears to the perfect father that you are despite how their father was and that you would help them, Lord, that you would help them to see you in all of this, that you would help them to see you even in those things that were so imperfect that it wounded them and that they would find somebody, that they would connect with somebody and talk with somebody and allow somebody to walk through that with them, walk through that pain with them. And that includes my little girl, the pain that she carries toward her birth dad. So, Father, I pray that you would draw these people to yourself, that you would love them as only you can because you are the perfect Father. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share this story tonight. I love you, Lord. Pray that you would be honored and glorified in this time and that you would draw every listener to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll get back into my testimony, my faith journey, next time when we get together for episode 17. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Keep listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Aural History. This has been a production of Z Media and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. Join us again next time.